Good morning, church. We took a break from 1 John last week to hop back into Colossians. Thank you, Pastor Andrew, for that uh, wonderful message. As we go back to 1 John this week, I think it's appropriate that we do a little bit of a review um, so that we're all kind of on the same page. And if you haven't been with us the whole time, uh, maybe you'll be brought up to speed and you can know where we're at. So chapter 1, if you'll recall, started us off with a clear statement that this book is all about Jesus Christ. In verses 1 through 4, and there was a reminder of the message that we had heard from the beginning in 1 John 1, 5. God is light. That was the guiding thought for John throughout chapters 1 and 2. And he gets to a clear command after that in chapter 2, verse 15. He says, do not love the world or the things of the world. Now, before that, there hadn't been any commandments in the book of 1 John, just statements about what people ought to look like when they walk in the light as God is in the light. But there were those, John says, who do love the world. They walked in darkness. And John used strong words to describe them in chapter 2. He called them antichrists. They were those who denied that Jesus came in the flesh. And John urged his congregation in chapter 2, verse 24, to let what you heard from the, uh, from the beginning abide in you. Two weeks ago, we started chapter 3. And here we read that we are children of God. And as God's children, we no longer make a practice of sinning. On the contrary... Christians are characterized by their righteousness in Christ. And when they sin, Christians don't brush that away. We take sin seriously. We confess it. We repent of sin. And all of this was in stark contrast to those who were claiming to abide in God and who had left the congregation. We've called them the secessionists, right? Those who had left. They hated their brothers in Christ. They denied that Jesus was the Christ. And they lived lives of lawless rebellion against God, loving their sin. All of these were words that John used to describe them. And so we ended in chapter 3, verse 10, which says this. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. And that last phrase is going to be the the bridge between last week's text and what we're going to read today. So if you're just joining us, I hope you feel a little bit caught up. Ultimately, John is trying to show his congregation or congregations that he's writing to the importance of living a life like Jesus. Christ is the light. He is our life, and we have received grace from him. But he has a call upon our life that we have to live up to through the Holy Spirit. So let's stand and read the word of God together from 1 John chapter 3, verses verses 11 through 24. For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, 
who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. And whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. And whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. Please be seated as we pray. Lord, now as we come to your word, we pray as we always do that you would help us to align our lives with it, that this would change our hearts to look more like Christ. We pray that you would use it to renew our minds. Spirit, we pray that you would move in us and among us today. In Jesus' name, amen. This text is a classic example of the unique qualities John possesses as a biblical author. He builds upon himself, flowing from one concept to another until he circles back around again to his original thought. It's constantly developing. And what he's doing is setting up an argument that culminates in verses 23 and 24, specifically verse 23. And this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. And it's the latter of the two that John is trying to argue for. We are supposed to love one another. That's what our text is all about this week. So let's follow his argument. First, he's going to show us the opposite of loving one another. What loving one another doesn't look like. In verse 11, John starts off by telling us the message that we have heard from the beginning. Remember, he said in chapter 1, verse 5, This is the message we've heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. That's the message. God is light. And chapter 2, verse 7 says, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you've had from the beginning. Again, in verse 24 of chapter 2, he says, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. Okay, so maybe you're noticing this is a common thing John likes to say. Remember what you heard. We know that the message we heard from the beginning is that God is light. And right here in chapter 3, verse 11, John says the message we've heard from the beginning is that we should love one another. And so he's connecting the two. God is light. Therefore, we should love one another. 
So what do people who walk in darkness instead of the light, who don't belong to God, what do they do instead of loving one another? What's the alternative? Verse 12. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Okay, maybe that for you comes out of nowhere, right? Cain? Why is he bringing up Cain? It seems a little bit random. But John is bringing up an old Bible character who's probably the best example of hating a brother, right? Literally, Cain killed his brother. And he goes on to say, and why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Okay, so John's doing some interpretive work here in the story of Cain and Abel. You've probably heard the story, right? But let's quickly turn to Genesis chapter 4. Keep your thumb in 1 John, flip over to Genesis chapter 4. Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. So Adam and Eve have a son. His name is Cain. He's the firstborn. Then there's Abel. And they both do different things. Abel keeps sheep, and Cain is a worker of the ground. Now, eventually in the story, they both bring an offering to the Lord from these different working environments. Cain offers fruit of the ground, and Abel offers the firstborn lamb of his flock, along with what the scriptures say, the fat portions. And God prefers Abel's offering, and he has no regard for Cain's. He rejects Cain's. Now, why is that? Well, that's been a a major source of debate for centuries. Why does God prefer Abel's offering over Cain's? Does God reject Cain's offering because he values a blood offering over vegetables or fruit of the ground? Was it Cain's attitude in the offering? Or as he often does throughout the scriptures, does God choose Abel's offering because he just does? That's his choice and his prerogative to make that choice. Honestly, it could be a combination of all of these things, but it seems like John offers his own interpretation here. So let's flip back. John says, because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. In Genesis 4, 6 through 7, God approaches Cain, right? Right after the offering, and his words there help us understand what John's getting at. God says, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? Get this, this is what God says to Cain. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. According to God, why was Cain's sacrifice not accepted in Genesis 4? He had not done well. John's seeing this, and he, in his own words, says he was not righteous. His deeds were evil. But Abel was righteous. From this evil heart that Cain had, God rejected him. And Cain rose up and struck down his brother. 
And John is implying, and I think it's a great interpretation of the story, that Cain was rejected because his deeds were evil. His life before the offering was unrighteous. But Abel was accepted because he was righteous. Abel was in right relationship with God. Cain was not. So Cain then becomes the perfect example of what it means to hate your brother or sister in Christ. Those who are acting out of the righteousness given to them by Jesus will love their brothers. It's a natural outpouring of our salvation. But those who hate their brothers show that they are of the evil one, to use John's language. Last week, we looked at this word lawlessness in chapter 3, verse 4. And for John, Cain is the perfect example of lawlessness. He is anti-Christ in that way. Again, to use John's language. And so John's reminded of the world when he thinks of Cain. And so he says in verse 13, Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. You see, the world has that same spirit, the spirit of Cain. It is lawless. And it hates God. And of course, it's, it's going to hate those who belong to God as well. Remember, for John, the, the world isn't creation. It's not everyone in the world. In his letter, when John uses the word world, he typically means that realm of demonic influence that opposes God. It's the domain of darkness. Satan's dark domain and everyone who lives in that dark domain hates God. That's a fact. They're like Cain who act out of hatred and lawlessness. And it's the opposite of what we have been called to. We've known from the beginning that those who belong to God don't hate, they love. And specifically, they love the brothers. It's worth investigating for a moment what John means by brothers. Because he uses that word several times in our text. Love the brothers. And he doesn't just mean male family members. And he doesn't simply mean male Christians. He's referring to the whole church. And some of your Bibles may even say brothers and sisters. Which is fine. That's kind of the sense. But I kind of prefer the old NASB translation. Which says brethren. It's everyone in the church. We are the brethren now, does this mean that we only have to love those who are a part of our church and that we're free to hate anybody else? Of course not. Remember the example of the Good Samaritan, right? Who is our neighbor? Everyone. We are called to love all people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But in the context of 1 John, John is most concerned with people loving one another in the church. That's what the letter is about. There was a lack of love within the body of Christ. Or at least, there was a group of people who did not love the brothers. These were the secessionists. That's why he can say in verse 11 that this was the message they'd heard from the beginning. It's a core part of Christianity. To love one another. It's not up for debate. It's such a core part that he can say in verse 14, we know that we've passed out of death into life because we love one another. Interesting, right? 
We're used to this idea of being made alive in Christ. We're no longer dead. And for Paul, that has to do with salvation. But, but here, John is saying we can know we're saved. We pass out of death into life. Not because of your vibrant relationship with the Lord, but with your vibrant relationship with one another. Because those relationships show your relationship with God. Man, that's some practical stuff. Worth investigating in our hearts about, right? A great Christian truth is this. Jesus doesn't just heal us of our sicknesses. He raises us up from the dead. Praise the Lord. Amen. We are spiritually dead before we are saved. But now we're made alive together with Christ. And a major theme of 1 John is assurance. How can you know that you're saved? Well, if you want to know that, John says you should look at whether or not you love your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the first litmus test. Those who love their brothers and sisters in Christ can be so sure that they belong to to Jesus that they've passed out of death and into life. Love is a mark of being a Christian. And why is that? Why is it so important? Well, that's a question for a couple weeks. But in short, it's because God is love. Those who love are of the Lord. And he goes on in verse 15. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no, one, that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. I mean, that's, that's some pretty in-your-face language. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. But John's doing something that's really great. He's saying that those who act out of a character of hatred are no better than Cain, the ultimate murderer. And Jesus says something really similar in Matthew 5, 21 and 22. You have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. John's staying well within the teaching of Christ when he says that those who hate their brothers, let alone angry at them, are murderers. But he says something else that may give us pause. He says, no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Hmm. What about forgiveness? Doesn't that... Does does that mean that murderers are beyond the saving grace of Christ? And if he's equating murder with hate and hate with murder, are those who have hated somebody in their past unable to be saved? Or are those in prison for killing someone unable to be saved? No, remember, Paul himself persecuted the church and killed Christians. This is what John is saying. He's saying that those who continue in Their murderous hatred don't have the love of God abiding in them. There can't be eternal life in those who live in darkness and death. The two are opposed. But even those who have committed murder in in this life can have forgiveness in the Lord. Praise God. Nobody is beyond salvation. The danger is when we think we have eternal life, but our hearts are filled with with hate. These two things can't live side by side. 
Someone who hates their brother is like Cain, a murderer. And that person is the opposite of what we are called to be. We are called to love one another. But this begs the question, what does it mean to love? We've seen the opposite. But his argument moves, moves on to second, the greatest example of loving one another. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So how should we define love? For John, that's pretty easy, right? It's, it's easy. We look at the cross. Jesus himself said in John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. We don't have to look any further than Jesus Christ to understand what love is and what love requires. In fact, John's taking it a step further in his statement. He's saying, Jesus' death is how we know love. And that word know is really important. It's, it's not just propositional knowledge, like you can know a fact without experiencing it. Like there's, there is a bottom of the ocean and none of us in this room have ever been there. John is talking about experiential knowledge, full knowledge. If you believe in Jesus Christ and you have placed your faith in his death and resurrection, you have experienced the love of Christ toward you. I could ask those here who profess faith in Jesus Christ to stand up and give their testimony. How Jesus individually has touched your hearts and your lives. That's what I'm talking about. Jesus went to the cross to lay his life down for us. He is our substitute on the cross. He took our place. There has been no greater act of love in the history of the human race, right? That's the peak, the apex, the capstone of love is the cross. And we've experienced it. If you are in Christ, you know what that means. You have that knowledge. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. So John concludes that we too ought to lay our lives down for the brothers. Now, as we'll see in verse 17 and onward, that doesn't mean we have to die for someone else. But it might. John doesn't count it out. And countless Christians through the ages have paid the ultimate price for their fellow brothers and sisters in the gospel. Godly love is not a stingy thing. It is self-sacrificial. It, imi it imitates Christ's example. And throughout the letter, John has been urging his audience to love one another. And now he's given us some context for what that means. Jesus is the greatest example of what it means to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. And it is a high calling to live up to. Jesus said in John 10, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and uh, my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. Praise God that Jesus went to these lengths to demonstrate his love for us. Amen? He was the greatest example of loving one another, but what does it look like in practice? Someone here may be called to lay their life down literally to die for someone else in this room. 
But for the rest of us, how can we imitate Christ in his example of love? That's the next stop in John's argument. Third, the practice of loving one another. Let's reread verses 17 through 22. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. These verses are incredibly practical. Maybe some of the most practical verses in all of 1 John, which is jam-packed with theology and reflection. How can we love each other well? If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? You may not be called to lay down your life for someone else, but I can tell you this for certain. You are called to care for your brothers' and sisters' physical needs. The world's goods are wealth and possessions. And if we are unwilling to give up our hold on our possessions for the sake of a brother or sister in Christ, then we've got our priorities backwards. Remember, We've been told not to love the world or the things of the world in 1 John 2.15. But a heart closed to a brother, a heart closed to a brother in need, betrays a love for the world. It shows that we prioritize our stuff and our money over each other. And John asks a a great question. How does God's love abide in someone who closes their heart off to a brother? And there's an implied answer there. It doesn't. Now, it's easy to nod along with and say amen to verse 16. We love it very much. Love looks like Jesus dying on the cross. That's true and that is beautiful. But Christ's demonstration of love has practical application for our everyday lives. We can't just love in word and talk, paying lip service to how great Jesus' love for us is, while we ignore the needs of our neighbors and fellow believers. The two don't go together. John says we need to love in deed and truth, which means in action and in reality. Generosity, John says, is a practical outpouring of our love for one another. So let's not hold on to our money and possessions so tightly that we're embarrassed, even embarrassed to talk about money here at Lake Morton Community Church as if that's no one's business. There are many great and wonderful opportunities for you to give and help out brothers and sisters in Christ. There are great outreach opportunities and missions opportunities that we need to give real money to, that you need to give real time to, and invest in. But remember, the context of 1 John chapter 3 is loving one another, caring for one another. And so there's another really practical area that we need to talk about. 
We need to be giving to each other. Right? That's the point of the text. We need to make sure we're prioritizing our weekly giving here at the church. I know that's taboo to bring up. Money, money though, let me get an amen. Money is not our God. It's something that the Lord has given us to steward well, and we need accountability with it. So, when the text brings it up, I will too. For instance, this first quarter of our financial year at Lake Morton has been a little down. There's been a lot going on and a lot of factors at play, but you need to be aware of that. God is going to provide everything that we need here. Amen. We trust that. And there is no embarrassment about it. And we don't need to feel bad. This is not a guilt trip. But we need to make sure we're loving each other. Do you think of your giving as love? An outpouring of the love of Christ? So let's prioritize generous hearts and open hands. And a willingness to help each other on a day-to-day basis when we see needs. Don't close your heart off to a brother or sister in need. Because the risks are clear in verses 18 and 19. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Now verse 19 can be difficult to understand. But when we connect it with verse 17, it becomes pretty clear. Sometimes, when we know we should help a brother or sister in need or be generous with our money or whatever the Lord's calling us to, sometimes we really don't want to give. We don't want to help. And our heart condemns us. For John, our heart is not our conscience. For John, our our heart is the seat of our wants and desires. It's the seat of the will. So if we don't want to be generous, like we're called to be, then our heart is condemning us. But the good news is that God is greater even than our hearts. And he can overcome our miserliness and our lack of love. He knows everything, which means he's not worried about our finances. And he can help us overcome our hearts. Praise the Lord. And John says that there are those who do act naturally out of the love that Christ has given them in generosity and in helpful love, and their hearts do not condemn them. These people are blessed with the spiritual gift of generosity and encouragement. And their first response to a brother or sister in need is to joyfully help. And these individuals, John says, can have confidence before God because this is only a result of the love of Christ. No one is naturally loving with the love of God. But if you find that you care about other people with your time and your talents and, yes, even your treasure, you can have confidence that you've experienced the love of Christ. Verse 22 says, And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. Again, in light of verse 17, 22 makes a lot of sense. What would somebody be asking for God in order to please him whose natural inclination, because of his grace, is to give and help? Probably the capacity to give and help. The very thing God wants us to do. 
right? God desires us to love each other as Christ loved us. And if we ask God for that ability, for a heart of generosity and love toward brothers and sisters in Christ, he is going to give us what we need. Amen? Those who are in step with the love of God and love their brothers and sisters in Christ in deed and truth are going to ask God for the things he already wants to give us. Praise the Lord. That's, that would be an amazing way to live. So let's all pray for hearts that don't condemn us. Let's ask God that we would be a people who please him and keep his commandments. Amen? So we've come to the conclusion of the argument. It's all been building up to this, verses 23 and 24. He's going to give a clear command now that we can understand it. And this command is rooted in our assurance of salvation. So this is how to know if you abide in God. And this is his commandment. That we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. John has made his case and his argument goes like this as one commentator put it. There can be no obedience of God's commands if there's no love for one another. There can be no love for one another if people close their hearts to those in need. And there, and there can be no confidence when approaching God in prayer when people close their hearts to fellow believers. We are commanded to do two things. Believe in the name of God's Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. And what we've read this week has been an explanation of what it means to love one another. Next week, we'll see what it means to believe in Jesus Christ. But again, this week, the focus has been on the second part of the command. And notice, it's all one command. This is the command, not commandments. Which means you can't really be believing in Jesus Christ very well if you're not loving one another. Do you want to know if you abide in God? Verse 24 says, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him. That seems pretty clear. But that's been a running theme throughout 1 John, right? Those who really love God do what he wants them to do. And as I've said throughout our study, that doesn't mean that we earn our salvation by doing things. We are saved by grace through faith because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is the greatest example of love. But we are called to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. And this whole series has been a study on how exactly to do just that. And the through line in it all, the constant refrain has been this, love one another. That's not an abstract command. At least it shouldn't be anymore after this text. It doesn't just mean be nice to each other. It doesn't just mean tolerate each other. It means to be willing to lay your life down. It means to be generous and patient and faithful to each other. Practically, it looks like getting involved in each other's lives. 
not on just a surface level, but inviting someone out to lunch, being there when their life is a mess. It means sacrificing your time to serve each other at the church or to dedicate yourself to prayer specifically for someone. It means driving out of your way to pick someone up that needs a ride somewhere or watching a couple's kids for an evening so that they can finally go out on a date. How can you be loving someone today? That's not an exhaustive list. How can you love someone today here in this room with the love of Christ? Again, I hope that's a very practical question for you, something you need to search the Lord for, for the answer. John ends by saying, and by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Now I'm going to return to this verse next week because again we have a bridging verse. It really fits perfectly with our text next week. But notice that all of this, loving one another in all of these practical ways is only possible because of the influence of the Holy Spirit. We can follow God's commands in love specifically love one another because of him, the Spirit. And that's where our motivation to love needs to originate, a relationship with the Holy Spirit. So I'm going to end here. Those who don't have a relationship with the Spirit, who have not placed their faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ on on the cross, can't hope to be doing any of this. So I would call you now to repent and believe. A reminder here, 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's a promise. And if you've not done that, I call you to do that now as we respond in prayer. Let's pray. I'd encourage you to take a moment. Speak to the Lord. If you need to place your faith in Him right now, if you can feel convicted about something in particular, take a moment and spend that time in prayer. God, you are love. Jesus, you are the greatest example of what love is to us. That you would go to the cross and die for our sins as our substitute where we should have died. Father, we pray that you would help us to live in light of that. To love one another because you first loved us. Thank you for your grace and your goodness. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.